Since I have started talking about pension plans for physicians, there have been a few plans that hit the market designed for Canadian physicians. Many of these are multi-employer pension plans, MEPPs. And people have been asking me, what's the difference between them and between the Canadian physicians pension plan? Today, we're going to look under the hood of what these MEPPs are about. So please stay tuned. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Okay, I believe we are recording. Good morning, everybody. And uh, how is my financial health doc podcast back with you this week? And I am your host, Vuket Tran. I have this week with us, uh, Mr. Jean-Pierre Laporte. Uh, Mr. Laporte, you guys know him very well. And uh, he is a, a pension lawyer who has been on my podcast numerous times talking about pensions. Uh, and the reason we are back today with uh, Mr. Laporte is because we have something in the Canadian market that is new. And so there is a, another pension program that is available for Canadian physicians in the market. This pension program is a MEPP, so multi-employer pension plan, which is different from the Canadian physicians pension plan. So as you guys know, I am the co-founder with JP uh, and also the president of the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan and the Canadian Professional Rules Pension Plan. JP, please introduce yourself and also uh, announce the same disclosure. Sure, yeah. So great to be on your podcast again. And uh, I am the treasurer of the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan. So remind us again what you do, JP. Well, I uh, am the president and CEO of Integris Pension Management Corporation, which is a pension consulting firm that's been around for about 12 years. And we specialize in uh, creating and devising and supervising and implementing pension solutions for Canadians, especially Canadians in the small private sector that typically don't get access to a true pension plan. Uh, JP is a pension lawyer, and your previous experience come from uh, the Bay Street, I remember. That's right. Yeah, I spent a decade on Bay Street in large firms. And so this is uh, why we have this podcast, because we're talking to an expert here. Let's just jump into the topic today. There is this new MEPP, Multi-Employer Pension Plan, that is available for Canadian physicians. So before we go any further, let's define what is a MEPP, Multi-Employer Pension Plan. So a Multi-Employer Pension Plan is a type of registered pension plan that's been around for a while. And it is to be contrasted with the classic single employer pension plan. So if you are, I'm going to pick at random, General Motors, 
you're a single employer and you have a pension plan for your employees. So that's a that's an example of a single employer pension plan. Under a multi-employer pension plan, many different employers, which may be completely unrelated to one another, all band together under a single banner and make contributions to a centralized pool, to a pension fund, uh, in relation to their own employees. So you could have 25 different medical professional corporations, for example, each one with one or two members or employees in it. Let's keep it simple. Let's see, one physician president per professional corporation, and all 25 uh, of these corporations are making contributions to a centralized pool. And so the centralized pool is administered by a board of trustees, and then the board of trustees will then appoint someone to manage the assets, like an investment manager or portfolio manager. And that's how those contributions from those 25 professional corporations are put to work in the market and are invested to generate investment returns. So that's sort of how the multi-employer plan structure works compared to a single employer pension plan, which is a lot more common, to be honest. So this pool... Uh, inside this uh, multi-employer pension plan, is it is it operates under a defined benefit or a defined contribution model? Yeah. So when I was talking about my example, I had a defined benefit solution in mind. It is also possible to have a multi-employer pension plan that offers defined contributions, in which case there is technically one pension fund. But that pension fund is cut up into, you know, hundreds of or whatever, depending on the number of plan members of accounts. And those are defined contribution accounts. So, Got it. yeah. So legally, we call it the pension fund, but really it's a collection of X number of individual defined contribution accounts where the specific contributions relating to a specific employee are invested and are, are, are then uh, taken by the investment manager and deployed in the marketplace. So it's a different concept than under a defined benefit multi-employer plan, where it's one typical, one single pool, one big blob, where all the money goes. Got it. So this multi-employer pension plan that has just been launched in Canada for physicians, is it a defined benefit plan or is it a defined contribution plan? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. Technically speaking, it's a defined benefit plan because that's how it's structured. But it is funded. The money is going into this defined benefit plan is funded under a special set of rules called the specified multi-employer rules. And those are found in the Income Tax Act. And the regulation. And under these specified multi employer rules, the basis for calculating how much money you can put in is the defined contribution rules, not the defined benefit rules, which you may recall from previous podcasts. Uh, the defined benefit rules allow you to put significantly more money inside the pension plan than a defined contribution plan. Uh, we're talking three to four times more over a lifetime. So it promises, this particular multi-employer plan that we're talking about promises a defined benefit 
but is funded on the basis of the final contribution rules. And you're probably going to wonder how that actually works, which I'm sure we'll get into. But that's the peculiarity of this particular type of multi-employer plan. It labels itself and promotes itself as a defined benefit plan. But however, it is structured as a specified multi-employer pension plan, which is a SMEP. And it doesn't use exactly the rules of a defined benefit plan. It uses the rules of a defined contribution plan. Yeah. Now, this is important because as we go on in our discussion, there has a lot of implications, financial implications, and we'll address them one by one and people will understand why that difference is so important. So now let's uh, look under the hood a little bit and uh, and sort of dissect this plan and look at the pros and the cons of this plan. Um, so this plan is said to be available to Canadian physicians with multiple caveats. And you have to go and, and look up what those caveats are. But there are caveats to that statement alone. But let's go one by one about the the different you know features characteristics uh, of of this plan so one it's a multi-employer pension plan in fact you know it sounds really good because it is like the ontario teachers pension plan which is a multi-employer pension plan it sounds like hoop it sounds like omer so all these are multi-employer pension plans and so is this one and so it sounds to be really really good but when we look underneath the hood, what is the difference? So talk to us about what's really good about this plan in terms of its structure. And when we look underneath the hood, why why is it not so good anymore? Yeah, so in pension jargon, a plan can have multiple employers, like the teacher's pension plan, the OMERS, HOOP. But it's not a multi-employer plan in the strict legal definition. Those are actually called jointly sponsored pension plans. And that is important because they don't use the SMEP defined contribution limits. They are still true defined benefit plans. And so more contributions, more money can be put in those plans than under a SMEP plan. So they look the same because they all have multiple employers. But from a funding point of view, uh, they are quite different. So I just wanted to make that small clarification uh, with respect to, to the differences and the analogies. These, uh, this particular uh, multi-employer plan that's been offered to the physician community is, as I said before, a SMEP, a specified multi-employer plan. So the contributions going in are fixed by what are called, what is called the money purchase limit or the defined contribution limit, and that's roughly $31,000 this year. If this defined benefit plan was truly funded like a def defined benefit plan, we might be able to put significantly more money than that limit. So the contributions and therefore the tax deductions would be much, much higher. And so this is a really important point because having made the decision to treat this multi-employer plan as a SMEP, 
was in my in my humble opinion a decision about expediency and ease of administration smeps are a lot easier to administer than a true defined benefit plan like a jointly sponsored pension plan because you don't have a lot of the complexity that comes with funding it over time especially when markets are not doing well and so or when markets are doing really well and you have to deal with deficits and surpluses all of that is irrelevant when you have a SMEP because you're capped at that money purchase limit, that defined limit anyway. <laughs> I'm definitely not a pension lawyer, so I'm trying to understand what that meant. Okay, so one, it is a multi-employer pension plan, but one specific one, which is called a specified multi-employer pension plan. And this was done this way for uh, one reason. I guess what you're saying is, well, it's easier to set up uh, it's easier to administer, uh, and it's easier to track. So for the the organization or the entity that is administering this plan, there's definitely less paperwork, less headache. Uh, and so for the entity that is uh, organizing this, it's definitely a plus for them. But it does not sound to me like this is the best for the pensioner, uh, because not all physicians are created equal. I'm a, I'm an eMERGE doc. I'm not a urologist or I'm a cardiologist, but I'm not an ophthalmologist, right? So we're not all created equal. And But what you're saying is, which attaches to the second point, is the contribution limit is 31,000. Now, does it mean that it's 31,000 across the board, whether I'm 35 years old or I'm 60 years old? Uh, what if I'm in my mid-career versus I'm in my late career? Am I? Are we contributing to the same? And and why should we? I'm if I'm sixty, I'm going to retire soon. Should I not be allowed to contribute more? I know that in the DB plan, I should be able to allow to be allowed to contribute more. But what you're saying to me is we're all contributing the same amount, thirty-one thousand. Well, that's what I was saying. For ease of administration, it's one size fits all. Whether you need to put fifty thousand dollars due to your age, uh, or or, or forty thousand. You're capped at thirty one thousand because that's the cookie cutter across the board limit that applies to the SMEP. So there's no real matching between your needs and what the plan offers in terms of these annual contributions. But it is simple to administer. So I could see why, as an organization the decision would have been made to elect to become a SMEP because it's simply much, much easier to keep track of and it just makes it really cookie cutter. If we if we compare it to the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan, where the unit of analysis is a, a personal pension plan or an individual pension plan, there clearly, as you get older, the law allows you to contribute significantly more than this DC limit. By the time you're 64, you can put $20,000 more than the DC limit inside of the IPP or personal pension plan. So you can see that age is a factor and there is a way to match the, the fact that you don't have as many years for your money to grow by increasing the contributions as you get older. None of that exists under this SMEP because they're capped at the money purchase limit the DC limit. So there's a disconnect between 
the actual savings needs and what the tools that are available under the pension plan. So let's move on to a, another positive because I think this is a good pension plan. It says that the pension is guaranteed. So I contribute to this pension plan, to this MEP for 30 years, 35 years, my entire career. And when it's time to take out the money at age 65, the pension is guaranteed. Well, guaranteed is a big word because guaranteed assumes that the assets invested in the plan will always grow at a certain rate so that the pool gets large enough to sustain those guaranteed pensions. And that's something that nobody can claim. Now, in a defined benefit plan, like with the CPPP and it's underneath it, the IPPs or PPPs, if the investment returns drop because of whatever reason, whether it's a stock market collapse or something, there is the ability to do top-up special payments to replenish the depleted assets, just like with the jointly sponsored pension plan, the teacher's pension plan, for example. But if you're a SMEP, you are capped at that 31000 or whatever it is in that particular year limit. You can't just throw more money into the plan to make up for bad market decisions or changes in the marketplace. So you're going to end up with a deficit that is not going away. Whereas with us, we can make the deficit go away by injecting more money. To call it guaranteed, um, I think, is problematic. The other thing that uh, is important for your listeners to know is that multi-employer plans, when you look at the legislation, there's a specific provision that says if the pension fund is unable to pay the promised benefits, those guaranteed pensions we were talking about. If the pension fund has not enough money in it to pay those guaranteed pensions, the administrators of the plan, meaning the board of trustee that we talked about, has the legal right to reduce those guaranteed pensions and pay a new pension that's lower that will now be guaranteed, except it's guaranteed at a lower rate. So give you a quick example. Let's assume that you have enough money to pay everybody a $100,000-a-year pension, quote-unquote guaranteed. But, you know, COVID-19 becomes COVID-24, and the stock market crashes. And now there's only enough money to pay everybody a $50,000-a-year pension. Well, the Board of Trustees of the Multi-Employer Plan has the legal authority to amend the plan and say, hey, guys, uh, you were, you were given $100,000 a year. Now the new pension is $50,000 a year. And it's guaranteed. We're going to guarantee you $50,000. So, yeah, guaranteed means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But in my mind, when I was banking on $100,000 for the rest of my life, and through no fault of my own, now it's $50,000 a year. Not sure that the word guarantee means the same thing for everybody. Now, this is important because <clears throat> I'm a 35-year-old physician and I decide to join this pension plan of yours, this MEPP, SMEP. And when I join, the advisor says, 
you know what, Dr. Tran, when you're going to be 65, you'll be guaranteed 100,000 based on this contribution of 31,000 based on this expected rate of return of 5%, 6%, blah, 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 whatever it is. So when you're 65, you're guaranteed 100,000. And then 65 rolls around and now it's 2050. Uh, like you said, we're either COVID-50 or the market drops or now there's multiple wars and the market crashes. Or even not that, the portfolio managers did a really bad job, right? It has nothing to do with the market, but the portfolio managers did a really bad job. And the amount of money in that fund is not as we expected. So now there's 30,000 of us doctors in this plan, but there's not enough money. So what you're saying to me is the board of trustees can say across the board, those who are retiring at six, age 65 that year and moving forward, instead of 100 grand, we're giving you guys 50 grand because there's not enough money to go around. And me as Vuket Tran, who signed on to this 35 years ago, thinking I'm going to get 100 grand, is now only getting 50 grand. And I have no recourse, no legal recourse at all. No, because it's in the law. The law allows the administrators to reduce the accrued benefits. So it's 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 mandatory. It's blessed by the government. You, have, you don't have a recourse. It's guaranteed. Your 50000 is guaranteed. Right. But it's so not guaranteed the... to what I thought it was. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a different guarantee, but that's 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 what happens. And and it's it's really because the structure of using a SMEP prevents the ability to make up for those losses along the way, the way that an IPP or a PPP under the CPPP is able to, if there is uh, underperformance, we can top up the pension plan with fresh assets to stay the course so that it's always fully funded. So you can truly guarantee the $100,000 that you thought you were going to pay yourself. And the assets contributed by the corporation is a is deductible for that year. It's not just that. If like, Let's imagine in the medical professional corporation, when it got paid by OHIP or whatever provincial body, People are listening in from outside Ontario. And there's money that is paid to the government in the form of active business income tax. The rest are retained earnings. If those retained earnings are invested in the professional corporation's non-registered corporate investment account, and let's say you buy shares of companies or units of mutual funds or units of pool funds or whatever, some form of capital property. And those investments do well. They grow in value. And now there is the need for a special payment. The CPPP administrators tell you, Dr. Tran, you need to sell a thousand of those shares that you bought that were worth a hundred dollars. Now you now they're worth four hundred dollars. You have to sell a thousand of those because we need the cash to put it into your pension plan. Your first reaction will say, Oh my God, I'm gonna my company's not gonna have a big tax bill, right? Because there's a capital gain for my company. But the reality is there is no tax bill. In fact, it's the other way around. Yes, for a split second, fifty percent of that capital gain is taxable to your professional corporation, but one hundred percent of the cash from the sale of those shares that's contributed to the plan 
under the special payments rules is a tax deduction. So the tax deduction is a lot larger than the taxable gain, which means there is no tax whatsoever. So that's number one. Number two, the other 50% of that capital gain. So I said it went from $100 to $400. So there's a $300 capital gain. So $150 of that capital gain is now a credit to your corporation's capital dividends account, which means you could pull out $150 as a dividend and pay zero tax on that income, personally. It's not just tax deductible. Depending on the source of the money, it could trigger a whole bunch of additional positive tax consequences that people don't even know about, to be honest, most of the time. Yeah, because it it becomes a little bit more high level than basic. And so for people to understand this, then they definitely need to look underneath the hood as we are doing right now. It's the, the, the devil's in the details, unfortunately. And, you know, in this era of, uh, you know, 120, 120 character tweets or whatever they're called, uh, people just don't have the attention span to look under the hood, to look at the details, to see what's truly going on. They just listen to the headlines. Well, that's, that's what we're doing right now. Yep. So it sounds to me like an MEPP is easy because it's already set up by this organization. Everybody can join in. We've done the paperwork. We've determined to be a SMEP. It's registered with the government. Dr. Tran, all you need to do is sign on. It seems like it's very easy. Definitely, yes. And so it's easy to sign on. Yes. Agreed. What if we look underneath the hood? What does that mean, though? Well, again, the fact that something is easy to sign on doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for you, right? I mean, look at all the different financial arrangements where people sign quickly because it sounds really great. And then they realize after the fact, once their signature, the ink is dry, that there's all kinds of catches and restrictions that no one really focused on. It wasn't a fine print if you really look for it, but it's a little too late now because you've signed, you've told them that you want to be part of this structure. Like, for example, when you sign up for a multi-employer pension plan, your co contribution, the mandatory contributions that are made to the pension plan, either personally or from your professional corporation, are now locked in under the Pension Benefits Act or whatever it's called in other provinces for those that are not from Ontario today. It's locked in, meaning that you cannot access this cash unless you fall under a couple of exemptions that are hard to, to fall into, or when, because you start drawing the money out in the form of a pension at, let's say, 65. So if you have an emergency and you plowed all this money into your multi-employer pension plan, and then you say, gee, I wish I hadn't done that because I have an emergency now. I need access to this cash. You can't touch it. It's locked in, meaning it can't be withdrawn uh, by the uh, provincial pension rules. Well, a lot of people aren't told about that. So that's an issue. Another issue is, let's say you somehow fall within one of the rare exceptions and you can unlock your money. It won't come to you all of it tax-free. 
because there is a special regulation that says when you're going from a defined benefit environment like this multi-employer plan into let's say an RRSP, well actually in this case would be yeah an RRSP or a RIF registered retirement income fund if it's unlocked not all of it can transfer tax-free there's a certain percentage of the assets that are allowed to flow into this other account on a tax-free basis but anything above that limit and it's called the maximum transfer value anything above the maximum transfer value has to be recognized as taxable income in the year of the transfer so you might lose money to the tax authorities as you're trying to get your money out because of an emergency, assuming that you fall within one of those very limited exceptions. Yeah, it's easy to it's easy to put your money in, but it may be a lot harder to get your money out. And of course, unfortunately, the promotional material typically doesn't really focus on the negatives, right? That of you course. only find out you only find out when you're in that situation. Of course. So I think here the key word is it's easy to join. So, How easy is it to leave if I wanted to? Well, I wanted to bring another quick, quick anecdote. There's this there's this multi-employer plan that, that's being offered to the physician community, but there's another one uh, that's been around for a little bit longer that's being offered to all kinds of professionals, including doctors. And I had one particular lawyer who had signed up and then, she wanted to get out of it. And then she was told by the board of trustees of that multi-employer plan, oh, no, 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 no. It says here that you cannot pull out for at least a minimum of 10 years. You must mandatorily contribute to this plan for the next 10 years. And only after the expiration of 10 years are you allowed to get out and stop being a member, stop contributing to the plan. And this was in black and white. It was on the application form. So I had to fight and fight and fight to get this person out of this structure. This, and this is a lawyer. This is someone who's supposed to read the fine print, not a busy physician that's between two calls and looking at charts and, you know, can't even have a time to go to the bathroom. We're talking about a lawyer who didn't even read the fine print. But for me fighting for her, she would have been stuck for 10 years in their minimum. That's the thing is, it's easy to sign up, but do you know what you're signing up for? That's the question. And a lot of people, they don't have the time. They don't have the attention span. They don't have the training. They don't know which questions to ask. They're just listening to the sales pitch and go, oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, let's sign up. And then it's too late. So now, assuming that I can sign, I can, I can leave. Now, in the case of this other plan, we're not talking about the same. In the case of this other plan, there was a 10-year minimum hold. But in this new SMEP that we're talking about, we don't know if there's a locked-in period or not. We don't know that. But assuming that there isn't, and I want to get out for whatever reason, what are the implications or what are the things I need to be looking at if I I don't want to I don't want to stay in this map anymore. I want to go on my own and and do my IPP or do my PPP. Oh, no, no, no. How, you can't how do that either. I you cannot. Can't, you cannot do that because the IPPs, at least in Ontario, uh, I even go back. The IPPs and the PPPs, because they're exempt from all the rules of the Pension Benefits Act, due to the fact that the physician is a connected person meaning a, a shareholder of their own professional corporation that owns at least 10%. So 
So because physicians fall within this definition of connected person, the entire IPP or PPP is exempt from the rules of the Pension Benefits Act. Therefore, if you have money in a multi-employer pension plan that is governed by the Pension Benefits Act, there is no legal way to take your money out of the multi-employer plan and transfer it into an IPP or PPP tax-free. It's not possible. The, the regulatory authorities do not have the power to authorize that transfer. You mentioned tax-free, um, but is there a way to get into an IPP and PPP but after tax, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. So, so if you remember what I told about told you about the maximum transfer value. So, assuming that you're allowed to unlock money, that's a big assumption because the, ex the exceptions are quite rare and quite difficult. But assuming that you fall under one of those rare exceptions and your money is now unlocked, then you've got the tax problem of the maximum transfer value. So, what's left? That small portion, once it's in an RSP, then that money could go into an IPP or PPP. But in the old days, all of it would have been able to be transferred with no tax. The entire defined benefit community value, the whole pot would have transferred tax-free into an IPP or a PPP. So what you're telling me is I have really three options to get out of this, should I ever, okay, should I ever want to get out of this SMEP? There's three options. One, I fall within that those small categories that you mentioned that allows me to do so, but not many people meet those criteria. The second is that I can transfer my money from the SMEP to an RRSP. So I'm going back to an RSP. Is that what you're saying? For that to happen, one, you have to to um, be able to unlock your money. And the unlocking exceptions are rare. Ah, so even for that, even to go into an RSP, I still need to meet the unlock criteria. Yeah, because all locked-in plans, when you do sever the relationship and you exercise what's called portability, the portability option for a defined benefit plan like this is a locked-in retirement account ah. or, or or life income fund, All right? Not an RSP or a RIF. Ah. So the locking in rules carry through to the new account. Got it. So I'm going from a SMEP DB plan to another locked-in plan, not an yeah. RRSP plan. Unless you can fall under one of the ex, the the, ex, the, uh, the unlocking rules, like if you're over age fifty five in Ontario, you're allowed to unlock fifty percent. Half your money goes to a, a lira or lift. The other half can go into an RSP or RIF. That's on. But but some of them may be taxable. So you have less than really fifty percent. <laughs> If you count the tax, if you remove the taxes, but your money could eventually end up in an IPPPPP, but a lot of bruises along the way. Right. So you mentioned if I'm over 55, what are the other unlocking criteria? Just quickly. Sure. Well, if you have a shortened life expectancy, if a doctor writes a note saying you're going to die in the next two years, most likely, then you're allowed to unlock everything. If you become a non-resident of Canada, for more than two years, then you're allowed to uh, ask for full unlocking. 
I've already mentioned the age 55. The other one is if the annual pension that's promised by the plan is below a really, really low level, then the idea is this is such a ridiculously low pension, we might as well unlock all your money, allow you to get out. So those are the key unlocking exemptions. And for most people, none of these are viable. So now the third way of getting out of this would be to go to an IPP, PPP, but not tax-free. So what did you mean by that? Well, like I said, when you go from a defined benefit, like the MEP is a defined benefit account, a defined benefit plan. When you leave the defined benefit world and you go into the other world, just the money purchased or defined contribution or RSP world, there's a special regulation that only allows you to unlock, to uh, transfer a portion of your monies on a tax sheltered basis. So let's say I have, I have $500,000. This is my community value, sort of my entitlements under the defined benefit plan. And I decide to transfer that out. The law, based on my age, may say, okay, of the 500000 $400,000 can go into the RSP or the Lira or the Lyft. The other $100,000 is included in my taxable income for the year. It's cash. So I have to pay tax on it. And if that puts me in the top bracket, I'm going to round it down. I'm going to have to give 50% of that $100,000 to the CRA in the form of taxes. I get to pack, pocket the other $50,000. So it's, there's, a, there's a tax consequence whenever... You go from a defined benefit world to another type of plan design, like defined contribution, RSP, Lira, and that's this regulation. So it, it doesn't allow you to take all the $500,000 and roll it into the RSP. But my question is, I don't want to go to an RSP. I want to go to an IPP because I still want well, to stay have, in the pension. You, have to, you can't go directly because the IPP and the PPP are not governed by the Pension Benefits Act. So there's no legal mechanism to go from the MEP directly into an IPP and PPP. It's not permitted at all. Right. The Which only means... way for this roundabout route of unlocking some of it or all of it if you can and, and, and then into an RSP, then from the RSP, you can go into the IPP or the PPP. I get it. I get it. So there's no direct way. And whichever way you want to do it, you still have to go through the RSP route. But to do that, you're going to be taxed before you get there. Most of the time. There's some exceptions if the community value is, is quite low based on your age and all that. I've seen cases where there is no maximum transfer value issue, but those are pretty rare. I guess. Yeah. So we started, remember what we started with, right? We started with the idea that this was easy. <laughs> so we're now 15 minutes into discussion of easy. Yeah. Uh, it's it's actually the longest discussion we've had on a top on on all the topics that we want to address. So easy to sign on, not easy to get out if you wanted to. Well, not not without you know losing some some body parts along the way. <laughs> right, probably a right kidney and a liver. So well, you know, it's it's buyer beware, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That's in law school, caveat emptor, buyer beware. You know, you have to really look after your own interest.
So now let's address another one because it's an MEPP. It's a group. There's lots of people. There's economies of scale. There's really no fee to you joining this. So it's a no-brainer. Join the group. There's no fee to the administration of the plan. Well, there's always a fee. It's just that it's you don't see it. It's either taken out of the actual returns that you're enjoying because the people that are administering the plan are not a charity. They're not doing it for free. They take their cut straight out of the pension fund assets. So there is a fee. It's just that you don't see it. You don't pay it out of your own pocket. You pay it in the form of lower effective returns. So you think that there's no fee because all you see is a value that's changing day by day. But in theory, that value could have been higher had they not taken the fees off. So there is a fee. You just don't see it. It's hidden. Well, that's a problem because one, there is a fee. And two, I don't see it. Because I don't see it, I can't track it. And because I can't track it, I cannot deduct those fees from my income. Well, that's right. So you lose that feature, which, of course, you would get with the IPP or PPP under the CPPP, right? Because those fees are all disclosed, you can show that to the accountant and say, hey, I paid this much fee. Uh, please write it off my corporate tax return. Can't do that if there's nothing to see, nothing to show the CRA, no proof that fees have been paid. But we know that money's coming out because we know the money managers are not working for free, right? So again, it's this it's this problem of people are not really told how things truly work and they hope that you don't ask questions and you just sign on the dotted line and one more million dollar client just signed up. It's a great business to be in, but... Um, well, great business for... For the organization, yeah. not necessarily yeah. for the physician. Well, <laughs> that's the problem, is that the physician is the one that's holding the bag at the end of the day, and they just don't even know. The wool is being eaten off their back, and they don't even know. And that's now, the problem, is the lack of knowledge about pensions. Now, let's move on to this is this whole pool of money is professionally managed by a professional institution. It's yep. not Vuketran, he's too busy operating. It's not Dr. Smith, he's too busy seeing his patients. So you're not you're not you as a physician are not asked to even deal with this and, and bother with this. Go continue seeing your patients. We'll take care of everything. We are the professional management. It yep. sounds really good. Oh but yeah. What's, but what's underneath the hood here? Well, I mean I'm not sure that there's anything untoward here. I think it's true. And I'm sure that the professionals that are tasked with managing all this money that all these physicians are bringing to the table and trusting them with, I'm sure that it's professionally managed. It's not managed for free. That I know for sure. This is not a charity. So these people, you know, uh, who are paid extremely large salaries for managing money are getting fees. Right? So, so it's not free. Whether it's managed properly, I don't. I, I wouldn't even venture a guess as to whether or not it is or not. I assume it is. I would be very disappointed in the Canadian financial system if if it wasn't managed professionally. So this is one area where under the hood, there's probably nothing wrong with having these professional money managers. I wanted to add one more point is that this organization who is managing this SMEP 
has a potential of investing in its own funds or financial products as opposed to other manufacturers of funds and other products. They may favor their own products. Additionally, you know, employing their own advisors to manage this pool of money. And so this organization stands to double dip. In fact, not only are they taking the, you know, the fees and the costs, but they're also making the money from the uh, from the advisors who are managing this pool of money. Yeah, but I guess I guess to be fair, I mean, if I were to defend the map, I would say, yeah, but as long as the rate of return is there, the fact that we've double dipped it, we made money twice over. You know, we're you're still getting the rates of return that you need to pay that defined benefit that we promised you. So, what are you complaining about? Fair enough. Good point. Yep. So now let's move on to the next one. Um, you can transfer the money to your spouse when you die. Seems yes. seems uh like a good thing to happen. Uh, so let's elaborate a little bit on that and what's underneath the hood on that. Well, I mean, again, there's nothing untoward here. Uh, pension laws do provide for a spousal rollover should you pass away. Your pension monies, whether it's in a MEP, an IPP, a PPP, whatever, that money goes over to your spouse and there's no tax consequence. That's what we, we you know we call the spousal rollover. The problem occurs when you die with your spouse. Because if you die with your spouse, then you can't do a rollover to your spouse because the spouse isn't there to receive the money. Then you have what's called a deemed disposition under the Income Tax Act. Whatever monies, registered monies you've had under your name is deemed to be ordinary income and taxed in the ta in eternal tax return, the last tax return that your state trustee is filing with the CRA. So if you had a million dollars and you died with your spouse, in some car accident or some other event, and there's no guarantee period, so there's no ability to pay an amount to the children, then the full million dollars included into your into your taxable income, and the estate trustee will write a half a million dollar check to the CRA. The rest can be distributed to the beneficiaries. That's a huge, huge problem for the next generation. But with the CPPP, if the children can be added to the physician's plan because they're on the payroll. Should death occur, like in this situation, and there's a million dollars inside the pension plan, there is no deemed disposition. There is no half a million dollar tax problem. All of the money that the physician left behind is considered pension surplus. And because the children are part of the plan, they now have a legal right to deal with that surplus, to take it out if they want to, to keep it there, to grow it further, to send some of it back to the corporation. So there's all kinds of new uses for that money. Instead of giving half to the government, you, you hang on to it, and it's available for the next generation. Legally, very different paths for that money. And again, as far as I know, none of this is disclosed on any of the websites. Uh, it's not a part of the marketing literature. They don't mention that they're much, much better alternatives to what is being offered you kind of have to know this right buyer beware you got to know the rules so i'm just gonna unpack that and maybe put it in a way that 
I would understand. I'm a physician A, and I'm a gynecologist. You know, I deliver babies. I operate. I get called at three in the morning, four in the morning, one in the morning, and I have to rush to the hospital. And I'm doing this for the next 35 years. I'm working my butt off. And um, unfortunately, either I don't have a spouse, I never got married, or my spouse deceased me before, or, you know, at age 67, we both passed away in a car accident driving down to Florida. I don't know why I always use Florida, because I think it's a straight line from Toronto. But, you know, I could drive to Phoenix, Arizona, whatever it is. And so at time of my death, I don't have a spouse. And so there's no spousal rollover. What you're saying to me is the money that's left in my pension that was unused um, goes back to the pool of the other 30,000 doctors. Uh, well, there's a, there's a guaranteed period. Ah, good. Okay. So what is yeah. that guaranteed period? Do you know? So for, for a life-only pension, meaning a pension just to you because there's no spouse to do a continued a survivor pension to. So that's called a life-only pension. Hmm. It's for a single individual with no spouse uh, at the time of retirement. So on a life-only pension, is a 15-year guarantee, which means that let's say death occurs after 10 years of collecting that pension. From year 10 to year 15, those monthly pensions checks that I was collecting will go to my children. Tax-free? Oh, no, not tax-free, but uh, as income, treated as, as income. It's taxable in their hands. Yeah. Right? But yeah. it's, it's it, it continues for five years. Yeah. Because that's the expiration of the rest of the guarantee period. Correct. So they get five years worth of monthly benefit. But that's it. It it dies. It ends there. But I still have Everything. two million sitting there. Well, that's surplus. Okay. So I... So as as Dr. A, um, that's it. It's gone. Well, if you're in a multi-employer plan, that surplus stays in the pool. It stays in the communal pension plan with all the other doctors. So other doctors and their families and their spouses will enjoy your money, which is, I guess, nice if you're very uh, sort of, you're a giving person. But I would prefer for that money to go to my children instead of, strangers that's just my personal choice but if you're in the multi-employer plan because the surplus is communal it stays in the pool and it will be used to fund the pensions of other doctors or so, to make up for those those uh, market losses that we were talking about so beyond that guaranteed period there is no legal mechanism to leave that money to your children no so in a defined benefit plan under a MEPP, there is no legal structure to leave money to the next generation beyond the guaranteed period. Correct. That's it. So let's contrast that to the IPP, PPP, or the CPPP. How, yeah. how is that different under those models? So remember, the law is exactly the same. So if, if there is surplus created, that surplus now is within the tiny pension plan environment. It's not shared with anyone else. Only the physician and their family is an, is an eligible member for that defined group. So the money stays in the family. So if there's surplus, it's available for the family members that are part of the plan. Tax-free because there's no, there's no deed disposition. If the kids 
could never be added to the payroll of the physician's corporation, which can happen. You, you might have an accountant who says, you know what, like kids are, are in Australia and they refuse to receive T4 income from your corporation. We can't make them employees. So there's no way that your surplus can go to them tax-free on debt. They still have access to the surplus, except that now it's going to be taxable in their hands when we receive it. But I would rather pay 50% tax on a million-dollar surplus than pay no tax on getting nothing, which is what happens with the multi-employer plan situation. So in the IPP, PPP model and CPPP model, it doesn't stop at one generation, does it? No, it could. If the children have children of their own and you can add them to the plan, then this cycle continues through through the ages because the pension plan doesn't die. So the surplus can continue to grow so long as the pension plan still has living members in, which means the next generation. So one last thing I wanted to talk about is that uh, this new MEPP is uh, promoted as being available to all Canadians across Canada. But when you look at the fine print, it is not. So there yeah. are some provinces where the physicians cannot access this MEPP. Now, why is that? What happened there? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there when the plan design was uh, worked on. But I can tell you from experience that legally, it is not impossible to offer a pension plan for all Canadians across all provinces and, and the territories. It is doable because I've seen it. I've worked on plans like that, so I know it can be done. It's probably, once again, one of those convenience things where because the pension legislation in Canada is like a quilt, everybody has their own rules, it does make the administration and the paperwork more complicated when you try to ram in all of the provinces and the territories in a single document. Um, so for those practical reasons, most likely, and you know, I could be wrong, and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, but most likely they said, you know, administratively, it's just not worth it to try to get it all in one shot. So certain provinces were left out, and one of them in particular, who's dear to my heart, uh, is Quebec leaves you thinking, gee, you know, if this is such a great solution, why are we not allowing these physicians to join? Well, Quebec, I've looked it up. It's uh, close to 26,000 physicians. So it's not a small number. Uh, and it's not only there and near to your heart, it's near and dear to mine. As you know, I grew up in Montreal, did my own, my entire study in, in the province of Quebec. If people don't know, I'm from Sherbrooke uh, University, which is a, a boonie town somewhere. Maybe I shouldn't say boonie town. They would be really unhappy if they knew that I call them a boonie town. But it's a small town in the uh, eastern pro eastern side of Quebec, really nice with the really nice uh, ski hills. You've ever been skiing there, uh, JP? No, no. You'll never catch me on skis. <laughs> But needless to say, it's it's not for every Canadian physician. That that was what I found out. Now, how is that contrast to the IPP PPP? Well, we don't have that problem. We have uh, physicians and clients pretty much from across the country. So 
we tailor the pension plan documentation to your province to make it compliant. And away you go. We don't exclude tens of thousands of people and say, well, we can't be bothered with figuring this out. So you can't have a solution. We don't, we don't act that way, which I think is important because at the end of the day, the physician has to be at the center. It can't be all about the supplier's ease of administration. It has to be what's in the best interest of the physician. And if you don't have that mindset, if, if your whole DNA isn't structured around that, then you've got problems. I think this is what today our conversation really showed is that, you know, administrative ease should not be the criteria by which we, you know, we measure solutions. The way this, the decisions made as to how to fund it, let's use the SMEP rules because that's much simpler. Let's exclude 26,000 Quebec because we just don't want to bother with having to integrate the specific Quebec rules. You know, these kinds of decisions doesn't mean that the plan is a bad thing for physicians. The physician wasn't truly at the center because if the physician was at the center, they would have made sure that every physician in the country has access. Given what you've just said there, it sounds like the design of this plan did not put the physician in the center. When we designed the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan, it was designed around the physician. That's great. And if I if I may throw in a, a quick medical analogy, um, you know, a lot of diseases that are kept caught by by patients in hospital used to be because a lot of physicians didn't have time or forgot to wash their hands when they went from one exam room to the next, and so they would they be a vector to transfer certain types of diseases from one uh, patient to another. And when public health people said, you know what, we should put some protocols in place to ensure that physicians always wash their hands before treating a new. Some physicians said, you know what, uh, I don't want to do that because my skin's going to be chapping after a while or, you know, like I maybe, you know, sometimes I'm in a rush and I may not have time to do it or, you know, it could be all valid reasons. But at the end of the day, the healthcare system is designed for the patients, not for the ease of the physician. And so that to me is kind of a, an analogy. Sometimes you, you, you have to do things which are more difficult uh, because you have to act in the best interest of either the patient or the physician in this case with pension matters, even if it means more work, more complexity, uh, being forced to wash your hands in between each uh, examination. That's if that's kind of helpful in explaining why you know pensions have to be physician centered, not provider centered. That is a good analogy, and and I think everyone who's listening to this podcast will easily understand that. So, with that, JP, uh, is there anything else that? Uh, we should mention before we leave this podcast, any parting thoughts for our audience? Well, there's a lot more, but again, it's all about getting the right information, asking the tough questions. And if someone shows you a product that seems, you know, too good to be true, you know, please always 
have the sixth sense and say, hey, let me check with some people who actually know about pension plans. Let me call a pension lawyer. Let me call a pension specialist or a financial advisor. And let's see what they say before signing on the dotted line because you might, it might be too late once you've signed. Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's not it's not too good to be true. It is a good pension plan, uh, but we have to be aware of the pros and cons, and we have to be aware of the details. But I think what you're saying, JP, is it's not don't do it, don't join the plan. If you're going to join the plan, make sure you have done your due diligence. Make sure that you understood, but also make sure you actually look at the alternatives in the market and and compare and contrast before you purchase yeah. uh, the same way the same way i was looking for a um, sports car i was you know analyzing a mustang i was analyzing a toyota supra i was looking at the acura i was looking at the bmw 3 series like i was looking at everything and look at what my options are and what best suited me not what the best car what best suited me and so what you're saying is do your due diligence yeah uh, that's what i think is the best advice for today and you can call that conflicted or not i think telling people to be careful uh, i don't see anything wrong with telling physicians to be careful before believing what people are telling you I think that is the message that we want to leave the audience. Do your due diligence. Look at everything. Look at the alternatives in the market. And if you are going to sign with this MEPP, at least go in with eyes wide open. Don't believe the marketing. Don't believe the sales. Understand the solution. And so please, everyone, do your due diligence. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you need to re-listen it to it one more time or two more times, pensions are quite complicated and it takes most people four or five sittings before truly understand the pension. And if you're looking for one, then you definitely need to understand. If you have any comments or feedback, please leave them to me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. I'm also going to take this opportunity to announce our first financial conference for physicians. Save the date on your calendar, February 2nd, 2024, a full day conference on financial literacy for physicians and dentists. It will be in North York on Young Street near the Shepherd and Young area. It's a full day conference with food and even a wine and cheese at the end of the day. More information on how to register and where to register coming soon. So, but please save the date, February 2nd, 2024. And I hope to see you guys there. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. 
Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.